in Second Samuel chapter 3, it'll be noted today, but I'll humor you with it now. Uh, it's called malarkey in the monarchy, marriage, and ministry without God. Malarkey is an old baby boomer term for those of us who had fathers that were World War II vets and even grandfathers that were World War I vets. Malarkey simply meant nonsense. It's nonsense. It doesn't make sense that a kingdom that is God's would function without him. It does not make sense that a marriage that is his institution would function without him. It does not make sense that a ministry that proclaims seemingly their allegiance to him would function without him. So when any of those things do operate and they are without functioning in him and for him, they are dysfunctional. David right now, who is being highlighted in his life, is at really a precipice of change with regard to exercising authority that God gave him. And one of the things we want to look at is that David's not a perfect picture, not at least in walking as a man, decisions that he makes as a man. But what is highlighted in his life is that his desire is to please God even though he fails quite often. But I would say he fails far less or with infrequency to others that are not even seeking God. And we know that he has sought God. But in some fundamental ways right now, there's error that's on the horizon that he's entered into. Part of that is the influence of a people group that said in a given moment of time, and either just prior to David's birth, very likely, very likely, or just at his birth, there was a desire that the people wanted to say, we don't want God anymore. We want to be just like these other guys around us. We want a king. And so because we've been through First Samuel, that should resonate. You should remember that. And in the same context, this is where we're also looking at as well. Last week, in title, it was called When Generals Become Kings. And it was intended to say that we can think far too much of ourselves in positions that we are quite good at, but that when we go beyond that and we take on that which God has not given us and in fact are dismissive of God in it, there are things that we err on as well, and we have. We've seen that in our government. Very important to realize. Again, generals are those who are in a military sense at the highest point of decision-making, and they govern over the lives of those who are willing to lay down their lives for their country, for their community. As a result of that, Decisions that are made should not be made lightly, and they should not be made by God. And I don't even believe they should be made based on historic military strategies, because God's the one that has given those strategies. And each time that there's something that relates to a conflict, God is the one that knows actually how to precisely move in strategy. He may, to a general who asks for instructions, gives a precise documentation of something that worked 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago. 
But if it's simply an empirical formula, simply turn the page, this is where I studied back then, but it's not seeking God for knowledge now and wisdom to be applied in that knowledge, then there's defeat or there is unnecessary extenuation of a war in which God says, actually, that was a battle. I, I really like doing battles, wars, you know. That's when you guys go overtime on something that I wanted to precisely end on time. And I think that's important, that God doesn't desire there to be warfare that's endless. The battle belongs to the Lord. So if the battle belongs to the Lord, it must mean that there's limitations on how long the war needs to go on. In the same way, as there is this, you know, cleverness in the title, there are battles within our institution as government under God. Is he? Are we? Is he over us? Where did he go? Oh, I think we might have sent him away too, just like Israel did back in David's day. What do we do to get him back? To me, it seems like we call upon him. How do we call upon him? That's tricky. Because when all of a sudden our government says that we're non-essential, we ask ourselves, really? <laughs> what are you going to do about it? And we found that they are pretty good about doing something about it legislating in a way that simply prohibits us from being where we know we ought to be. What is God doing about it? He's turning us all into international broadcasters. <laughs> He's taking the battle to the airwaves, and all of a sudden we've become something altogether different than we ever imagined. As I look at a camera, there are eyes that are looking back at me. I don't know how many eyes. That's irrelevant. But I know that myself, as well as perhaps 100,000 other pastors, are doing what we never signed up for, at least not in the broad sense, not intending to take on a battlefield like we have been invited to. But it's happening because God changed the battle strategy because he wants there to be a finish on the war. And the war is against what Satan is intending to do, which is to steal souls and to violate the plan of God to save mankind from the penalty of sin, which is death, and to bring man up into the heavens. And so these are all fundamentally being portrayed when we look back into the Old Testament and we see these skirmishes of mankind. And when we see even the skirmishes within marriage, and when we see as well the skirmishes in the Old Testament that is revealed within churches. How can it be? It's because we are at war. God wants to limit that. And he wants to take each one of these incidences and say, battle, 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 through. So today, we want to look at these three areas. And I'll try to do that concisely. I could get bogged down. I've been known to do that when just something strikes me and I feel like it has to be you know, just continued to present um, an insight. But the reason that we're picking it up in Second Samuel chapter 3 is because that's where we've left off. And I've found that when I pick something up where I've left off at it, the job gets done. The word gets spoken. And so one of the things that some of you may not know that could be attending this teaching right now is this is expositional teaching. We move through it. When you hear a title, it has a theme to it. But the title is not that it's necessary, it's that it's a marker for what is being emphasized. 
the style of teaching is still expositional. We move through the Word of God. When we leave off here, we pick it back up on Thursday. Probably more substantial, less thematic, and we cover territory. And when we're through with Second Samuel, we'll say, Lord, where do you want us to go? So with that, let's take a look at this passage that we are now into. And I am going to pick it up in verse 1. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. What a great first line entering into now a place where David actually in obedience has gone to, and that's Hebron. And we know that he went there according to the will of the Lord because it was given to us in the second chapter. I'll read that just so that you understand the Lord is giving us some precision here. It happened after this, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, that David inquired of the Lord, there you go. Generals and kings make inquiry of the Lord on what it is they're to do. And it says, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. Now David asks a specific, where shall I go up? And he, God, said to Hebron, in verse 2, obedience, David went up there, and it says, with his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Now, it's interesting. Part of this deals with the theme that progressively moves. And that is, he's got a lot of men and their families that are following him. He now, in one sense, has no one in the way of him being established as king. And by the way, what he enters into is a monarchy. He has now become, very early on in his life, the one who is the successor to Saul. It's not Jonathan, he was killed. And it's not Ishbosheth. He has been harbored away in a place by a general, Joab, in a refuge that right now is containing him and they are surrounding him that he has the opportunity to move in the lineage of Saul. But he didn't read the words of Samuel. It seems that even Abner didn't, because it was very clear that in the anointing of David, Saul's monarchy would be terminated. And therefore, what we have to say is that as a result of what wasn't understood or what intentionally was ignored, this chase that now has happened for over 10 years with David and been quite unnecessary is now in I suppose the exhaustion of it having to be re-figured out, recalibrated. You know, 
We've all had our Garmins or our phones say, recalibrating, recalibrating, recalibrating. And we have that freaky moment where we're going, what, what, what did I do? And it's telling us that we didn't obey it. Sometimes, actually, for the Garmin, that's a good thing that you disobeyed. And sometimes it's not a good thing that you disobeyed the Garmin. It's trying to recalibrate you, trying to put you right back on the course again. In the same context, this is what God is always endeavoring to do in humanity, to put humanity back on course again, that the wrong turn taken can be corrected, so that the consequence down the line is minimal if there has to be one at all. So when we look at the life of David, we see one who had a perfect heart towards God, but who exercised vulnerably, imperfectly. As a result, consequences. Things that were unnecessary for him to experience, he experienced. And I suppose we would ask ourselves, then why did God let him lead? Because he's the same God that lets us lead. And if you can say and match yourself as in perfection, even though your heart says perfect towards God, flawless before men, then I would say you're closer to Jesus than probably 99% of the church. That is to be applauded, not insulted. But the fact of the matter is, is that God would say, there is none righteous, no, not one. And therefore, understanding that, I can be a little bit less derogatory about myself, a little bit lighter in terms of the things that, for instance, weigh me down and maybe even discourage me from wanting to follow God anymore because I know I'm following in one part the lineage of humanity. But I don't have to make all of the mistakes if I read about it. If I employ it, I can minimize the consequences. The reason that this is apropos is because we can already see something that's happening that was not God's intention for David. What is it? We see two women that have been mentioned. And you may say, well, isn't that what they did back then? <laughs> yep, they did. They did. It was called multiplying wives. And kings were not to have done that. But here's the interesting thing. Was David aware of that right now as a young man who was a shepherd, who was a minister of music, who actually was invited into Saul's court, who became a warrior in what he had done protecting his father's flock, and literally one who became a warrior employed as a general under Saul's army? And how in the world did he get to be a general in Saul's army? Just by slingshotting a giant to death? In part, in part that is true. But he had to enter in to ultimately a decision that he had made earlier. And that was the courts of Saul. The courts of Saul meant that there was a predicament, and we can go back and you can find that in 1 Samuel 16, in which a predicament in Saul's life, which was ordained by God, in which a spirit would settle upon him and make difficult his ability to to enjoy the position of being a king it was an annoying spirit it was one sent to him and there was no remedy except music david was one who had been noted as a singer of excellence and i bring your attention to this because i find that to be a link in terms of where we can also make a choice. Will we sing the blues or will we be found singing God's praise?
And if it was effective for Saul, who indeed says by those who were counselors to him, there is one who sings and plays well. And there's David. But here's what I need to know, or you to know. I need to hear it again too to know it. But before David entered into that time of being what you would call the valiant warrior, the little guy going up a big giant, he was actually praising God and watching sheep. He was actually being summoned well before he was being qualified to be a heroic. Kings are made by God, not in what they want to be, but actually in what they are already behaving as. In order to be a good king, you have to be the subject of a king. And what is understood in David's life is that he had no ambition other than to write songs to God who was the king of kings, lord of lords, and to be defending his father's flock. Isn't that cool? God said, you have all the qualifications. You know how to praise me. I'm into that. Judah's going to be my tribe, as you know, that goes out before me in battle. Everything that I see in you as one who ought to be here, I'm going to fashion and forge. You're going to have real life experiences. And the things that you write of me are going to be amazing. And the things that you do for me, unbelievable. And ultimately, those things that will be said about you, epic, archived. And yes, David, there will be included in that some of your failures. That those who follow you might not fail. Those who follow you might take the best of what it is that I have said about you and perform with excellence that which remains yet to be done. So David's an important figure because when I mentioned what has been mentioned, it indicates that in this which he should have been aware of, just based on the fact that the laws of God would have been read, they were the ones that Moses penned with his very hand. They were the ones that were esteemed in synagogues. You know, David was not ignorant. He was well-educated. But in this one area, it would appear that he took his cues from a king who didn't do really well as one that the people chose. You see, it's got to be something where you said, I'm not interested in the people's choice. I'm interested in God's choice. And I'm not interested in the standard that is acceptable to the people. I'm interested in the standard that God has said is pleasing to him. And by the way, God's standard is very easy. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. We're to embrace doctrine that he has given to us in his word, which is inerrant. And we get to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, meaning that every decision we make has the potential of fear of him, of consequence. But ultimately that, ooh, what's God going to do? Or, ooh, hope I don't mess up. Both of those things are important. The hope I don't mess up and the, ooh, what God, what God can do in this situation. Amazing. Amazing. So go back to, if you would, Deuteronomy 17, 
where we hear the word of the Lord spoken through the pen of Moses pertaining to the monarchy that is to come. And that's the thing that fascinates me. Moses had to pen about a monarchy that was still like some 436 years away. He must have been scratching his head. Monarchy? Is that the butterflies we just ran through coming through that 40? Mon no, not monarchs. Not those. Not those, Moses. It's about, it's about a form, a governance that right now is different than the one that you operate in. But he pens it. So here we go. And I'll pick this up. First of all, in verse 13 of 17. Verse 13 of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. And all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. Moses had to pin that. These are, these, this is the nature of the people you're running with, okay? These are the ones that will be following you as you present the word from me to them. So 13 simply says this. All the people shall hear and fear. That's a good word for us. It's a good word for us in this democracy republic that we should hear from the Lord and fear him and no longer act presumptuously. Let's continue. It gets good. And when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Moses wasn't operating in monarchy mode. He's penning something that God is cluing him in on, on the dispossession, the disposition of the people who will be dispossessed as a people. Look, if that's the way you're going to go, God will say, go your own way. And when you go your own way, you're going to go actually in four directions to all four corners of the earth. Because of what ultimately you did, my allowance and the doing of it, your consequence will be grave. In fact, your graves will mark every corner of the earth by what you've chosen, and that's rejecting me. Therefore, in a present tense sense, we're a nation that needs to get back to God. Because if God turns his back on us, we could go anywhere prayerfully, prayerfully, those of you who here have a relationship with God, and I can tell you affirmatively, your direction is up and out. That's the message that we want to be able to share, is that history records that kings, monarchs, they mess up, and people that follow them and the whims of the culture that literally steer them, they get destroyed. God would that none should perish. So David's not a marker right now of why we should have a monarchy. David right now is being used on why precautions ought to be gravely considered in the weakness of any government, any type of governing that is absent of God's authority and blessings. By the way, God could have worked with monarchies, and in fact, he has. He has. 
He's done great works through historical monarchies. It's just that they don't have the ability to stay up on their greatness because everything about life says you're going down. And eventually, that's what happens. Culture goes down. God becomes diminished. Eventually, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Let's advance, though. This is good stuff. You shall surely, in verse 15, set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you, but you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. All right, monarchies. You're tempting anarchy, but if you want to have somebody over you, you want to check in with me and let me make the choice for you. What do we do? <laughs> I am woman, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore. So, <laughs> we're the sons of anarchy. We're going to make this right. We have <laughs> red and blue, but we don't have the cross. So the one song, if you are a... <laughs> if you're a trivia fan, that was Helen Reddy made that big. That was her biggest hit. Helen, don't be sorry if I only credit you with the one song, but that was your one-hit wonder. And it was used as a banner song. But <laughs> there are others, too. There's the guys that say, I'm born to be wild. Well... You have a limited time for how wild you can be, okay? And if you caught the teaching on Friday, the Lord would say, come on, take a walk on the mild side, not the wild side. So this tells us something that God was already establishing in advance of 400 years before David even came on the scene. This is the way that I want it done. You guys are going to insist on it. I'm going to yield, but I still want to be a part of it. And that's the amazing thing about grace. It's the amazing thing about God is that he can give us his way that ultimately, if, if we submit to him, can accomplish things that are his way, according to his will. It could be better if we didn't try to alter his plans, but we also know that in sovereignty, nothing will change the supremacy of his planning and the satisfaction that he obtains in glory and what ultimately comes out in the outcome, regardless. It's just that there's casualties and heartache and heartbreak that happens. The heartache is that, oh, oops, wow, that's, oh, that's hurting. The heartbreak means it's too late to make the correction. Crack. So, we always want to tune in because David, we do know, was able to experience the heartache. And had he listened to the majority of his heartaches, less heartbreak. But he had heartbreaks because the heartache was ignored. Yet he was one that was able to pen famously psalms that say, Oh, Lord, hyssop is what I deserve. Purge me. Accept right now my, my pleaful prayer the tears that are running down my cheek, my convulsive body for what it is that I've done, apply the hyssop to me, the special herb that represented to God 
repentance or penitence. Sorry for what I did. Hyssop is what I need. Now, can I have some of that spikenard that I can just pour out on you? Lord, I'm ready for the myrrh to preserve me. The fragrance of purity. So this right now is what you would call saving us from presumptuous sin because he's recording it. He's telling us what we ought not be in pursuit of. If you do this, though, this is what you need to attend to, that it's my choice, not the people's choice. Yay, democracy. Yay, republic. Our choice. We love our choice. Free choice. It doesn't work, though. God's saying it needs to be my choice. You make your choice my choice, then the choices you make are going to be amazing. Amazing. And the experience that you have in your home, amazing. And the reason that you come to the church, eye-opening, heart-touching, restorative, healing, amazing. You shall set a king over you, and you may not set a foreigner over you. And this is one of our challenges today. Yeah, Christianity's not so big. It's not important to have a Christian leader. All faiths are faiths. All religions are good, we say. It's all good. That's our catchphrase. And government's good at using it. It's all good. So are people, because people will have the tendency to do what they want to do in violation of what God wants to be done. There's a consequence. But here again, right now, listen to this word. So it says that with, with regard to uh, this choice, verse 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself. That means get too big where he's too big for his britches. That's essentially what's saying. Those are animals that back then in those days would be used as tanks are today. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses for the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way. Hey, we're going to develop commerce right now. International globalism ought to be good, man. We can get some stuff from that place, from that place, and then from that place. And God see, actually, I could provide all of that in the place that you're at. I'm not into globalism. I'm into heaven. I'm into actually dominion of my kingdom, not through you, but because you're relinquishing charge in the position that you hold, that I might hold all things together. God calls that. We do. A theocracy in which God is king. Okay, I'll allow you. You can be kings. But you're actually going to be more prone to be pawns than kings. But I'm there for you because I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. Though you can put me to the back row, though you can dismiss me from the laws, I'm still king. And you will acknowledge me that one day. You will actually bow before me. Your tongue will confess me. So I say, as you would say, so what happens if I don't? You don't want to find out. <laughs> if you don't, though you've had time, then you will have chosen ultimately your eternal destination. You want to be one that says, as there's time. That sounds so good to me because as, as I read the papers, as I understand what's even happened right now, in my life, this has all been a result of fear, but not fear of God, fear of a thing, a thing that I can't even see. And social distancing, I hate it. I'm not meant to be alone. God would say, right, I wrote that too. It's not good that man is alone. Then why are we being pushed 
to the fringe? Why are we considered non-essential? Why is it that we have to harbor away? Because of the thing. The thing? The thing. Lord, I'm tired of hiding from the thing. <laughs> I want you. So even that thing can press us to want God and to abandon all of the things that have gotten in the way of the main thing, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. But here we go. We're not quite through yet on this. And this may end up being part one, two, and three, as I've been known to do. He says in, in verse 17, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Just in two sentences, he's aware of where culture ultimately is going. And what ultimately it will do will steal the heart of a man to have a focus on really a person more than what God says you need. You need just one person. This isn't talking about consequences that relate to relationships that went down the drain. This is saying that in his restorative way and in the grace that abounds with God, his intention is always that it's a mate, it's your mate, and it's you two linking with him in being productive as long as you can together on the earth and with family and within the church under his kingship, his authority. When all of a sudden the violin gets played because of the relationships that have been bad, that for whatever reason has happened to you, that's not the point. The point is that God takes his heart, he gives it to you, and he does what we call a new beginning. And that means that even our country has an opportunity to be given a new heart and a new beginning. And it certainly can happen, happen at a times of election, but it's far less a chance in the way that our culture has gone that that can happen. We've seen that. Corruption at the deepest levels, corruption at the most grievous of areas in responsibility that have been negligent, malicious, contrary to the heart of those who establish such a beautiful means by which people can be governed, but always with the intention that it was freedom of religion and no, not just any religion. It was always faith, the faith of our fathers to the faith of our Heavenly Father who gave His only Son. No other meaning to it at all. Every other faith has been disproven in the course of history and ultimately the crises of the nations. So with this, you may say, what was that? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, my Bible, I think, just fell apart, which is a good thing. I'm using it. But with that, it brings us now to this area. And I, and I need to share this with you because David would have already had that heartache. There already would have been a heartache in where he was at because when we look at this passage and when we go back and review where he had been given, obviously, a wife, and that's back in 16, 17, and 18 as we track with David. Remember one of the curious things that happened when he was moved into being a young combatant and ultimately a victorious warrior? Some of the men had already planted in his mind. And by the way, 
the guy that can take that guy out, he becomes the king's son-in-law. And you ought to look at their those daughters he's got. Huh? Yeah, the son-in-law. You get to have a woman. Now, we know that David wasn't particularly old, but we also know that with that became a particular, if you would, carnal challenge. Huh. I get to be a part of the king's family and it could change everything about my life right now. I get a gal. Chances are I'm going to get gold and I'm going to get a position. We don't have that expressed at David or with David at this time. What we're saying is that that was, in fact, the offer. And I'm wondering if David said, as much as he challenged Goliath, if he would have said to those guys, look at chumps, you don't understand me. I don't care about the king's position. He's my king, but that doesn't interest me. And for women, that's not my interest right now. Because God has said in his word that it's not good that a man is alone. And therefore, he will make a helper comparable to me. So I'm not interested. If it's God's pick, he'll bring her to me. But I don't have to be brought to her. And by the way, with regard to all of the other things that perhaps are available to me, I have no need. I love shepherding. I love honoring my father. I love even astounding and provoking my brothers at times to incensed anger because of my passion for God. They don't get me. I get them. But I love my brothers. And I'm willing to wait for God's timing on what it is I will ultimately become. Remember that Samuel had already moved into the anointing of David. So David knew where ultimately his destiny lied. So how is it then that it all happened? Because once you move to the provocation of the voices that say, this is what you ought to do in order to get where you want to be, then all of a sudden you're on a, you're on a train you just can't get off of. And then all of a sudden things become acceptable to you. So Michael was given to David. But do you know what David had to do to get her? Because that's the other point. You can go back and read it. He had to deliver from the death of the enemy, the Philistines, 100 foreskins. He outdid that. He did 200. He really wanted to seal the deal. <laughs> he, he only needed to fight Goliath. And guess what? Everything that the Lord had for him would have been given to him without making one more impression upon Saul or those who were in the military. And I just cite that to say, as God has spoken to you, you do not need to add to what he says he will do for you. Let him do it, even if others say, now's your chance, now's your opportunity. By the way, David didn't make that mistake all the time because had he continued in that vein, he would have taken Saul out on least three occasions, killed him. And he prohibited that from being done. The reason I need to invite that in on our previous studies is because David did have a conscience. 
And he probably had learned, yeah, that wasn't the right thing to do. But if that's true, then why is there being right now an emphasis in chapter theory with regard to this multiplication of wives? How could that be? Because it says in verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon. You can read about him and you will. Didn't turn out so well. By Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, his second, Chiliab, you can read about him. His name, which I find to be interesting, also means Daniel. And there's something that is wonderful about that. We don't have much of him, but notice this. It's by Abigail. We've talked about her. The widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, the third, Absalom, the son of Mecca, the daughter of Tamal, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. The fifth, Sheptahiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife Egla. These were born to David in Hebron. In seven years, seven and a half years, he's multiplied wives. Why? Well, it tells us something about the human nature and it tells us something about the defilement of what would be called the carnal government. It's because others did it. And it was in increasing wives and having concubines that you would increase your status. The how dare we come against him. The other thing was, was the preservation of the lineage of the monarchy. It had rules to it. The rules basically would defy what God said in his rule back in Deuteronomy. But men proceeded with that. And as a result of that, David actually moves into complicating his life severely and grievously will regret many of the things that came through the lineage of procreating with different women who had different kids whose hearts were not knitted with him. The one that we said was the king of Gerar, that's a political alliance. The one that you didn't hear about but that we know about, Michael, that was a political alliance. It's very likely that David entered into that because it was a manipulative act from Saul to control David by what he saw in David, by what he had heard. That's the the guy that you have singing guitar right now in that room, he's going to take your place. We heard about it. In fact, we were going through the trash, moving out the chicken bones and stuff. That feast, which Samuel had for him, says it. it's over for you. Really? Yeah. And by the way, Jonathan's, they're beginning to cut an album together. They're, they're singing together. I don't even think Jonathan's into your monarchy anymore. Really? <clears throat> I'll give him my daughter. Keep him close enough to throw a spear at him. Cut him down. Send him out into battle. So it's very likely that on the other end of this was a conspiracy to take the man of God out. Did David have to worry? I would say no. But did he end up getting sucker punched? 
I'm going to say yes. Why? Probably his age. Probably. His maturity in the things of life had not yet reached his spiritual plane. He was very high here, but in terms of understanding the mechanics and deceptiveness of politics, of governance, of malicious intents, he wasn't there yet. So why is it that we say to young men and women, look at those in the faith that are preceding you on their walk. Understand where they've been. Have your ears tuned in. But most importantly, what do you see about them that is uniquely different perhaps than where you're at right now? Right. They surround themselves by those who, like them, love the Lord. You see them pray. Have you been praying? You see them read their Bibles. Are you reading your Bible? You see them attending fellowships in which Bible study is happening. Do you do that? And here's what inevitably happens. Uh, can't check that one off. Not really. Now I lay myself down to see. Praise the Lord. Yeah, that one. Can't check that one off. Uh, Bible study. Mm, let me see. Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world. I can't really check that one off either. And all of a sudden, because, man, I don't have any checks. But the things that when I see their success, they're obtaining in these principles, which God, I know, desires of me. I want them checked off in my life. That where I'm at really right now, even in spirit to God, now has an opportunity to be fortified and experienced with God. The experience with God as I'm moving through the experiences of life. See, some people can have a very high plateau of spirituality, meaning not denying God, but at the same time not being exercised in the discipline of following God in the experiences of life. This, I think, is where David was vulnerable at. He could handle that guitar great. By the way, he was faithful because he would go from the area where he would, you know, put Saul to sleep, dodge a couple of spears, have a couple of, you know, elbow bumps with Jonathan, and then he'd head back to take care of the sheep with his father. He was a very faithful son, which, by the way, is a marker for men and women being faithful as sons and daughters to those who are your father and your mother. Does it end here? Almost. But the, I want to also give us just an opportunity to see a qualifier. And so I'm going to direct your eyeballs back to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel is where I want to highlight someone that I believe the scriptures desire us to highlight for David. So in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, not 2nd, that's where we came from, chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, picking it up at verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was, notice this, a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. I'm closing right there. It says in good understanding and beautiful appearance. Michael had been taken away from David. David's on the run for 10 years. She's the only woman right now presented in scripture 
that I believe because of God taking a judgment upon Nabal was the woman that God had in what had been a devious act from the king to steal Michael, his wife, away and to give her to another man. I believe that Abigail was the woman that was the next best, if not the best choice. Because Michael was given to David in a political ploy to ensnare him, and because we also see that early on, somewhere in their marriage when David had to make an escape, she used an idol in their room, wherever it came from, to deceive those who came to kill David. It indicates that her heart really was not in the sense of David knitted with him in his heart for God. And so what I do believe is that this very likely was the woman that all along David was to remain with and to have no other before or after. She's the only one of his wives right now that is touted with excellence. And if you move through this as well, go to verse 41 and let's see what else is said about her. David makes a proposal to her in verse 39. He sends people for that. And it says, verse 41, She arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail, it says, rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Okay, that's awesome. Look what happens, though, in verse 43. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. And so both of them were his wives. Closing in verse 44, a reminder of what he had left behind. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galam. We see basically relationships right now that are marital. And we see one that was indeed the consequence brought about by David's father-in-law. But we see the other two that seems to be an election by David, at least in the additional one, Ahinoam. And we have to ask ourselves, was that intended? And I have to say, from the lineage of what we see, I don't think so. I don't think so. The excellence of Abigail speaks for itself. Her humility and actually what the scriptures would say, her wealth. Why was he doing it? In violation of Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. Fatigue, 10 years on the run. Now he's at a time in which God's giving him rest. But if he asked God, if he asked God, so, Lord, what do you want of me in this situation? As he had in where we just came from in Second Samuel chapter 2 and 3, if he asked, Lord, there's this other lady that's batting her eyes at me. I'm so blessed with Abigail. Is this what you want me to do? And God would say, uh, no, negative. <laughs> Mission not acceptable. That's not for you, David. Go back and read your journal. Go back and check in with Moses. He wrote about this. Don't multiply wives to yourself. Don't do it. 
Hebron's going to be a place of restoration for you. It's going to be a chance for you to get your men together, put them at ease, develop your ministry, your legacy for when I make a way for you, you come back into essentially Jerusalem, which will be appointed for you. But forget the other chicks. It's not going to work. And if you talk to me, I'll tell you about the sons that you'll have and it'll scare you. <laughs> Don't do it. But this seems to be the the way that right now David moves. And you may say, well, man, that sounds like a bunch of malarkey. It is. It was nonsense for David to take the plan of God, which he would have known all the way back in the Garden of Eden, to that distortion. His son would later pen, and probably because of understanding what his father did and what he did, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, 1822, Proverbs. Wow. But notice this. It doesn't say he who finds wives. It says a wife. When there is consequence in marriages as there are, God is the one that makes up that difference with a wife, with a husband. But it's one. What does it say? It's monogamous. What does that mean? It means that it's centrally focused on one person who has enough challenges coming into your life that you don't need any other challenge in following God with your lives. You can't do it. No one was successful in that. More mouths to feed, more personalities to keep happy. And what God says ultimately is, is that that is going to steal your heart from me. That excess is going to steal your heart from me. So the bottom line is, is men are potentially vulnerable to excess in so many different areas. And God says, that will steal your heart from me. And women at the same time are vulnerable in the fear, there's no one for me. Men say, wow, they're all for me. And women go, there's no one for me. Okay, I'll just take him because he wants to take me. It'll work. It doesn't work. <laughs> and if you if you find a woman that talks that way, you want to ask the Lord <laughs> if that's the one you should take. <laughs> monarchies. Monarchies. Oh, Lord, you're king of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, you're the one by whom my marriage is blessed. If I just... If I just invest in that person, both wife and husband, and not go the way that the culture says I can go, but go in the way that God says is good, then I'll be blessed. And in being blessed in marriage, guess what, guess what happens then? Ministries flourish. When all of a sudden God is the monarch, king of kings and lord of lords, President, okay, do your thing. Prayerfully, you love God and you're choosing people that love God and they love the life of the unborn child who, by the way, has personhood. Good. You do your job. Have your prayer meetings. Awesome. I'll be praying for you. Be voting for you. Great. But be reminded, you're under a king. You're not a sovereign. He is. Decisions you make are eternal. Make them good. And marriages, she's yours. He's yours. Make it good. Enjoy together your life until it's time to live life in the eternal. But make a difference in the lineage of your life. And right now the temporal. Make a difference. Make a difference. 
And when you do, and that's your choice, is to love me in both who you elect, who you marry, my church becomes vital. And no one will say that I'm non-essential. Really? I've heard that before. See, God would have heard that before. <laughs> Back in First Samuel. Samuel had to hear those words. Samuel, don't grieve. It's just, they're not rejecting you. Actually, they're rejecting me. And Samuel was grieved. But when those things line up, then people are not standing in lines six feet apart in fear because of that which God easily can say, got this one, that's just a small battle. You couldn't see it, I do, gone. Okay, you didn't check in with me on it. You haven't sought me for it. By the way, I had over 100,000 medical scientists, civil engineers, policemen, doctors, lawyers, teachers, moms, dads, educators, fishermen, all lined up ready to take on every single thing that you guys face now. But you rejected them in the womb. They're with me now, but you do not have their skills and giftings because your monarchy thought that it could make a decision which really is malarkey, nonsense. And so simply in closing in this last area, the church was given a directive that was very succinct. In Acts chapter 2, if you want to see how it works, the simplicity of it, it's simply this. We wait upon the Lord. We wait for the Lord. That was what they did in the upper room. But in Acts chapter 2, the vital church says that with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those, notice this, who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And the question would be in this closing, Do you gladly receive the word today? Well, I would have had you shut your mouth 30 minutes ago. You can get back to it. But can you say, where you've sat through movies, that are three times as long as this sermon, can you say, I gladly receive the word today. Correction for the culture that elects monarchs that dismiss the sanctity of life, that do not care about the holiness of marriage, that find the church as irrelevant and non-essential. Can you say that on this one hour, that word was good. It was hard. It was hard. And I'm going to find out where you live. I'm going to deal with you. But... It was a good word. It was good enough to get me angry at you. You better hope God protects you. I have trust and confidence that God will protect me. And I don't doubt that there are insults and injuries that unnecessarily perhaps are being forged in your mind. But it's not me. It's the word of God that challenges you in your mindset. And so gladly receive the word today and pray in that gladness that the Lord begins to reign once again in this land. And you know what it's called? It's called revival. It is called revival when the heart and soul of the unbeliever and the heart and soul of the so-so believer are knitted together in one course action. I've got to change direction. What I decided to do back then, months ago, when the virus hit, 
I cannot any longer do. And this six foot, man, I want to close it with a handshake, with a hug, with a prayer. Because I guarantee you, I'm not going to live my life six feet of distance between people. If that's it, you hear it. They can take me to jail because it's wrong. And there are on the other side of this argument people that would say, you know what, there's an answer for that. It's actually coming close and getting immunity because people are in unity. You can get immunity, but when you separate, that's all you're doing. You're protecting yourself in vulnerability for one particular day in which you no longer have protection. And I'm a believer of it. That's essentially what vaccines and inoculations do. They introduce to your body system that which your body needs. We don't relish the thought. I can remember the nightmares of getting those live flu shots when it was an elephant gun they shot you with. And all the ablets, you, you didn't want to see us if you were a doctor because we could outrun you and we could throw obstacles in your way. We had to be cornered by a bunch of them. We had to be held down to get the nail. And we promised mom we would never go with her again anywhere, even if she promised us M&Ms. Because <laughs> we didn't want the consequence of being inoculated. But mom knew if you don't get this, you'll die because of a greater consequence. Your body system will not be ready. And the Lord would say to you, get inoculated in the scriptures that you might not die because of sin which expresses itself in disease, manifestations right now that are corrupt to you, to your spirit, to your body. Get saved. Get inoculated. The simplicity of this was that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles and all who believed were together and they had all things in common. Won't that be great to have common ground again in the church and, and a commonality in studying the scriptures?